You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're here with a big macro update. Obviously, a lot of big macroeconomic news of interest to family offices, high net worth investors, really anyone in finance. Joining me today is Anastasia Amoroso, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist at iCapital. Anastasia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Good to be with you. And we're going to jump into macro, which I can't wait to do. But first, I'm sure a lot of our viewers have seen you on CNBC, Fox Business, Bloomberg, and obviously your chief investment strategist at iCapital. You're obviously a very sharp person with a strong financial background. Uh, but when they hired you at iCapital, were they were they blunt like, hey, Anastasia, you're going to have to be on TV all the time? Was that in the job description? <laughs> I mean, yes, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, to be honest, this obviously, uh, you know, being able to deliver thought leadership in the in the media has been a part of my job for a long time, and certainly is a part of my job at iCapital. But prior to iCapital, I spent, uh, I guess, eight years at J.P. Morgan. And that's how I initially got started in the media. And, you know, it's it's really interesting because it, it's really a great way to be able to very succinctly tell what is it that you're actually thinking? What is the punchline? What is the bottom line? Because when you put in that spot, you know, that 60 second, you know, segment on television, you have to deliver that right message, you know, very quickly, very succinctly, and at the right time. So really, I guess my point is it really makes you do the work, do the research to really get to the bottom line of what is it the conclusion really is. So, uh, so yes, it is a part of my job at iCapital, and I guess it has been for a while. It, as you point out, I think it's an underappreciated skill to be succinct. Like, obviously, with the podcast, I work with a lot of communications professionals, you know, representing their clients, scheduling, you know, uh, appearances on the show and communications is hard. I mean, it's in finance. I feel like it's something that so many professionals struggle with, whether it's advisors, uh, communicating with clients or even asset managers, you know, trying to communicate what their unique strategy is. Do you think that do you think that's like a, an underappreciated skill or do you think it <laughs> do you think people are very well aware of how hard it is? No, I think it is sort of underappreciated and I mean I guess we're all aware of just how much noise there is out there and financial noise and there's you know a variety of different opinions and there's an opet for this that and the other and you know really a job of a financial professional of a strategist or a portfolio manager is to cut through that noise and make sense out of what is a really, really complex world. And, you know, I, I'm sure you, you, you would agree that it takes time in the profession and it takes time to develop an investment process to be able to cut through that noise. And once you have the process, you know, for example, maybe it's as simple as looking at three things, valuation, positioning, and a catalyst. And once you kind of have this process in place, it makes it that much easier to tune out the noise and get to the essence of kind of what is the bottom line? What is an investment decision that needs to be? So um, I think it's a skill that's developed over time. And, you know, in the world of, you know, media and Twitter and chat GBT and what have you, it's, it's really still so important to cut through the noise. That's really interesting. You know, I'm thinking about 
you know, I, I became a self-directed investor about a decade ago after I sold my business and had a liquidity event. And I never really thought about it that way, but you're right. Like that is a skill that you have to develop. Like sometimes people will ask me, well, what do you think about this or that? As if I'm like going to sell some investment because of some news about Twitter or something. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, that's not even really on my radar. It might be something that's, that's right. interesting, but it's not going to make me panic. So that's it's I, noise. Yeah, it, exactly. So obviously your job then intersects with both financial analysis and economics, as well as communications in that aspect. Which part of the job do you enjoy more? I mean, it's all in it together, right? And, and okay. I guess if I were to get a little bit personal, it's interesting because I started in college as a journalism major. And, you know, I wanted to be, you know, communications, I wanted to be in journalism. And pretty quickly, I realized that you kind of have to have a specialty, you kind of have to have some sort of subject matter expertise before you can go and, you know, you know, cover a certain subject. So then at that point, I decided that, you know, I really like politics and policy, and I decided to go become a political science major. And then pretty quickly, I realized that a lot of politics actually revolves around finance and the economics of it. And so I eventually ended up getting a major in finance, minor in political science, and I guess communications was sort of wrapped up all around it. When you think about you know, the job of a professional, a financial professional today, it's really integrating all those three things. You know, we focus on the numbers, we focus on what the economy is doing, what the financial markets are doing. But then there's this geopolitical event or that there's another. So it's really difficult to disentangle, you know, policy from economics. And so, you know, so today in my role, I'm sure you as well end up spending a lot of time thinking through how those two things are intertwined. And then, you know, if you can't communicate your conclusions, you know, what are those conclusions worth? So, so I would say it's all sort of part of the same process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was talking with an asset manager the other day who had a background in the hedge fund space. And he was saying, you know, when you work for a hedge fund, it's not just your ideas. It's almost like a, like a boiler room or, you know, kind of you have to have a very uh, thick skin to be able to not only have the idea, have the trade, but communicate it and, and defend it, you know, almost like defending a dissertation or something. Is building that conviction, right? You have to do the right amount of work, the research, the preparation to be able to have the conviction. I mean, let's face it, you're never going to be 100% certain in the investment decision that you're making in that particular moment. You know, you, you don't have a guarantee in, in this profession, but over time, you know, if you've done enough work to have the conviction and then you use that conviction to actually put on a trade, make a certain investment decision. And then you do this consistently time after time again, and the track record actually starts showing that your work is paying off, you know, that in turn is going to give you more and more conviction. But the point is, you're right, you do have to have the thick skin. I think the way to get it is to do the work, to do the research. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you can't second guess yourself. You know, I think about some of the allocation decisions I've made as an investor, you know, having really any allocation to bonds <laughs> the past 10 years. and you know, I have to say, if I could go back 10 years ago, you know, I understood my logic at the time, which is you want to have portfolio ballast, you want to have dry powder. And so even though, yeah, stocks outperformed bonds, you know, by a huge margin in the past 10 years, I don't know that I would do anything differently because I was following a process 
And I would defend, you know, my thinking and my process. I think that's just as important because you're right. You're not going to, not every trade is going to go your way, right? That's right. That's right. And of course, in 2022, really just about nothing went our way. But having said, there's obviously been times where bonds have delivered what they're supposed to deliver for the portfolio. And maybe, maybe again in, in my lifetime, they will, but, but who knows? Well, on that note, you know, let's move into macro a little bit. The first thing I wanted to ask you about was Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, that, you know, from the macro standpoint, uh, maybe the biggest news so far this year, it sent shockwaves throughout the economy, throughout the financial sector. Um, do you think that that has the market calmed down? Is it sort of priced in all that news? Is is our institutional investors, our, our retail investors feeling more calm about the banking system now? The answer is yes, absolutely. And we can see it in the market action. Uh, we can see it, for example, in the fact that the two-year treasury note has rebounded again, and we're not pricing as many rate cuts. You know, So that even tells you there's some sort of sense of stability returning to, to the markets. Um, I think the sense of stability is returning for a couple of reasons. First of all, this realization that SVB was actually a kind of a standalone issue and then the second reason is that the regulators managed to return the sense of calm. So just to unpack that a little bit, first of all, my take on the Silicon Valley Bank is it didn't have to be this way. And what I mean by that is the collapse of SVB was caused by a classic bank run. I think there are certain series of events that caused that bank run. But imagine if it's a scenario where you didn't have all the deposit outflows, then you wouldn't have had to crystallize all the losses on those available for sale securities or held to maturity securities. And perhaps that could have been a bank as risky as it was that maybe still continued to exist. So what happened with SVB was a concentrated depositor base that was caused you know, to stampede out of the door. Um, and at the same time, it was a concentration of securities that they held on their balance sheet. That is very unique. Um, you know, if you look at all the other banks out there, the depositor bases are not as concentrated. It's not just, you know, close to 100% corporate depositors. And if you look at most banks, they don't hold 58% of their assets in securities. You know, that percentage is closer to 25 or 30%. So therefore, you know, as rates went up, those bonds had to be marked down. That's not as pervasive of an issue for everybody else in the banking sector. So I think that's one of the realizations that's causing the market to stabilize here. But the other one, if I look at the deposit outflows, you know, in the weeks, kind of the, the one or two weeks following SVB, you saw, I mean, well over $100 billion that went out of the small banks and either went into money markets or went into the large banks. But if I look at the data last week, we didn't see, I mean, just about any outflows. In fact, we saw a little bit of inflows into wow. the small banks, into the small regionals. And so if the deposits stay at the banks where they are, then this whole issue sort of disappears. And, and by the way, it's not to say that, you know, I think banks are a great trade or anything like that. And we can unpack some of the issues with net interest margins. Uh, but if deposits stay at the banks and they don't have to crystallize the losses on their securities portfolios to compensate with those outflows, um, and the fact that deposits have stabilized, the flows have stabilized, that's what sort of returned the sense of calm uh, to the markets. 
Understood. So, so, and you know, arguably their balance sheet, their portfolio was a little bit mismanaged, right? So that's, that's a local issue specific to that bank. It doesn't mean that every regional bank nationwide uh, is on the wrong side of the bond trade, right? Well, that's right. And, you know, if you look at Signature Bank, you know, the reason why those were the two that, you know, I guess one succeeded the other was because with Signature Bank, you had a similarly concentrated depositor base. Um, and and that's who, that was the next domino to fall. But you're right, that's not the case with all the other banks out there. Uh, what, what I will say, you know, the reason... You know, I don't think regional banks are a great trade right now, and you know we should we should we should catch that falling knife, despite the low valuations, is because all the banks are going to be competing for deposits. And if you look at the online savings rate, for example, it has done a much better job, uh, you know, being closer to what the Fed funds rate actually is versus what a deposit or a checking savings or whatever account at a regional bank may be. So as a result, if you're a regional bank and you're trying to make sure depositors stay with you, you're likely going to have to pay up for those deposits. So your deposit beta goes up, your cost of funding goes up, and that squeezes the net interest margin that the bank may have otherwise. So that issue was not unique to SVB and Signature Bank. Although if you look at their net interest margins, they're arguably under the most pressure, but all the net interest margins for all the banks out there are somewhat squeezed now. So I don't want to dismiss that. But in terms of, you know, being really standouts, I would say SVB and Signature Bank were. Understood. They're all going to be in the pressure. And I guess as a consumer, I don't mind. I don't mind if the banks are under a bit of pressure, you know, well, we and, can... pay, and pay you more on that checking and savings account. Yeah, I told a, a previous guest, you know, I got kicked out of, uh, well, JP Morgan Chase private bank because they wanted me to keep a minimum cash balance in the account, paying whatever, 0.1% or whatever. I got up doing that. So that was, that was good once upon a time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, yes, I, you know, I don't wish for anyone to go under, but I'm all for, you know, change in the banking sector. And, you know, we can see if there are, you know, better deals, I guess, ahead for depositors. But an another interesting aspect of all this and the fallout from SVP and the Fed, uh, I'm going to link to this article in the show notes and I, and I want to read from it. You had a recent uh, article on the iCapital Insight section, facto pause and a new metric to watch. That was talking about how you know the Fed pressed on. They raised the Fed fund funds rate uh, to the target range of four point seven five percent to five percent, but you would still call that a de facto pause. And just the language in the FOMC statement, in in, in your words, the new language is vague and, in our view, an acknowledgement by the Fed of the uncertainty ahead. So you you yeah. see you see this as all this there's a de facto pause for interest rates going forward. I do, and one way to think about it is just look at the yields uh, since a month or so ago. Mm -hmm. At one point, the two-year Treasury note uh, was trading at a yield of five percent. Well, that collapsed to three point eight at one point, and now it's back up above four. But so that right there sort of tells you that the markets are expecting the Fed to pause and cut rates. And when you think about, you know, what the economy reacts to is what are the rates in front of us? 
And the fact that the two year went from five to four, that's already sort of the relief for the economy, so to speak. Mm. So that's that's one way to look at it. But the other way, uh, the reason I think about this as a pause, I mean, we have just hiked rates by 500 basis points. So if the Fed did 25 basis points here and maybe they do another 25 basis points in May, that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Oh, and by the way, they're also telling us that the terminal rate, you know, according to the summary of economic projections is 5.1%. So I think it is possible that the Fed may try to go another 25 basis points in May, but that in my view is going to mark the end of the hiking cycle. And I just wrote another article this morning, um, you know, talking about the fact that the Fed is likely approaching the the end of this hiking cycle when you assess the economic, when you assess the credit conditions. So inflation is one thing, and we get the inflation number uh, on Wednesday. Inflation is starting to cool, so, so that's great. But what's really cooling is the credit cycle. And that is the new metric that the Fed has given us to watch is what are the banks doing in terms of tightening lending standards? What are they doing in terms of net new lending? And when I looked at some of those charts this morning, it sort of shocks you just how much tighter credit conditions have gotten over the course of the last few months in the course of the last year. I mean, just some numbers, the rate on a new car loan went from four and a half percent to seven and a half percent. The credit card loan rate is at an all-time high of 20%. It was 15% just a little while ago. Uh, if you look at the small business average rate paid on short maturity loans, it's near 8%. So it's back to March 22 levels. So as consumers and small businesses, we're now facing much, much higher levels of rates. So that's likely to be deflationary. And then on top of that, you add the regional banking crisis that we just went through. And, you know, Andy, we talked about if the industry margins are squeezed, what are you going to do? If you're worried about the deposit outflows, what are you going to do? You're going to lend less. You're going to lend a smaller percentage of those deposits out. And so even before this uh, latest uh, episode for regional banks, you already had the uh, banks tightening the lending standards on commercial and industrial loans. And on CRE loans, almost back to March of 2020 levels. This was before this latest episode in March. Uh, you know, if I look at the spread that the banks are charging, you know, over the cost of funds, that has been widening as well. So when you look at a set of charts like that, oh, and by the way, the net new lending on commercial real estate and commercial and industrial loans, that has now declined. That is now in negative territory because regional banks pull back. So when you look at this set of charts, you know, you can't help but think, wow, this is a lot of tightening that is working through the economy right now. And I think if you're the Fed, you have to look at the same set of charts and sort of sit back and let the credit cycle do its work. They did the first part of this, which is raising rates by 500 basis points, which is the fastest and steepest tightening cycle in history. But now let those 500 basis points feed through to the economy and let that slow the economy down through the credit cycle. So I think that's the handoff. That's the next phase. Uh, but in my view, the Fed should pause for real <laughs> come come May. No, I, I I get it. So there's a lot of evidence that their actions are working, but it takes six, nine, twelve months for that to work its way through the system, right? And you know, I think we've seen a lot of leading indicators are disinflationary. 
right? So we can expect inflation, official inflation to continue to trend downwards. But, you know, my, I, not exactly a counterpoint, I don't think this is a rebuttal of anything you said, but, you know, family offices, they have a lot of dry powder sitting on the sidelines. And if interest rates come down, and it, it almost to me could be like the beginnings of another bull market, but before inflation has actually come down to that target level, you know, it's like the bull market would start again, you know? So it, I think maybe investors of all types have to understand it's not really going to get back to uh, the old normal. There's going to be some sort of, of new normal. Would you say that's accurate? I think that's right. I mean, Andy, if you think back, you know, let's say four years ago, it seemed like the economy could only stomach 2% rates. Yep. You know, and here we are with rates at 5% and the consumers are still spending. The unemployment rate is still at 3.5%. You know, yes, we had pockets of the tech wreck and the crypto collapse and, you know, the banking turmoil. But overall, this economy is on solid footing. So that tells me the new normal is that this economy can handle 5% rates. And if you think about why that's the case, by the way, I mean, just think about the consumer. We're not all that interest sensitive. You know, if this was back in 2007, where something like 19% of mortgages were floating rate, that's a very different story. Today, for US consumers, 4 or 5% of mortgages are actually floating rate. By the way, the picture is very different in Europe, and you do have a lot more interest rate sensitivity there. But as the US consumers, we're sort of insulated and shielded from this interest rate shock, by and large. If you think about the S&P 500 companies, something like 11% of their debt outstanding is floating rate debt. So yes, there's pockets of dislocation that are happening because of higher rates. By by and large, I would say big chunks of the U.S. economy are insulated from that. So that leads me to back to your question: the new normal. I think the new normal is that it's not just two and a half percent terminal rate, but five percent is something that we can stomach. Hmm. Well, this makes me think. I had a guest a couple months ago, and. He, he cornered me for a prediction and I'm always <laughs> hesitant to make a prediction, right? But I am wondering, and I'm just really thinking about a lot of these themes that you've mentioned. It all, I almost feel like we're in this space. We might be at the beginning of a bull market, but it's it'd be like a bull market that makes everyone angry. You know, <laughs> there's so much cash sitting on the sidelines, understandably, that waited out like 2021 or first couple of months of 2022, we're not going to buy commercial real estate at a four cap. We're going to wait for deals. We're going to see, you know, blood in the streets, you know, and, and, and it's just going to be like 2008, 2009, we're going to see a severe dip in valuations and be able to, you know, make these kind of once in a generation trades, legacy wealth type trades and buy assets on the cheap. And I'm be just beginning to think, the other shoe is not going to drop and and maybe inflation doesn't get bet down to 2 or 3% you know ever again or maybe for a long time but that doesn't mean that there can't be another bull market right well that's right and i want to pick up on a lot of great points that you just made you know first of all i think it is frustrating for a lot of people you know that here we are with fed funds rate of 5% and yet this market is not cracking and <laughs> but what i think this actually tells you is this a classic 
late cycle environment. When you think about the business cycle, you've got the recession, then you've got the kind of the initial bounce back, which is usually led by valuations. Then you've got the earnings recovery and earnings growth part of the cycle that's you know usually meaningful. Uh, and then you've got the Fed tightening. And the Fed tightening typically generates some of the worst returns, some of the most muted returns outside of a recession. But once the tightening cycle is over, everybody sort of breathes a sigh of relief. It's like, oh, we just hike rates, but the economy is still okay. Yeah. And if you think about that, that's exactly where we are today. And so, you know, some people call this late stage, late part of the business cycle as euphoria, because we sort of feel like we've escaped the industry reality and maybe we're okay. So I don't want to confuse the start of a new bull market with this sort of late cycle dynamic. That's where I think we are today. And look, it may last for some time. So, we're, so Anastasia, sorry, we're, you, you don't think we'd be at the beginning of a bull market leg right now. It's more, in your words, that late, late cycle dynamic. Not, not, not yet. Not yet. I think we need to see more things to break. I, need, I think we need to see more of a slowdown in economic activity before we sort of hit that reset. I think for the new uh, cycle to begin, we will have to see some rate cuts from the Fed. You know, we will have to probably, you know, flush out the rest of the risk areas out there, such as commercial real estate, for example, um, such as the leveraged loan markets. And I think once we've done that and the Fed is now ready to cut rates, I think that's the new beginning of the true bull market. But I very much kind of distinguish that from this late cycle, you know, we sort of managed to escape um, reality uh, setup where we're in right now. Could we just muddle through, though? I mean, could it just be, you know, uh, moderate interest rates, moderate inflation, a range bound stock market? You know, it, like like I guess that's that's kind of where I'm yeah. at is, is you know, when yeah. you mentioned, you know, asset prices clean or some of this economic junk, it's like, you know, I, I live out in the country. It's like, you know, people just take all their garbage in the backyard and light it on fire. And it's like <laughs> we're waiting to do that here in our economy. Right. But I'm beginning to wonder, I'm like, I, I just kind of wonder if we're just going to muddle through and, you know, our asset prices really going to clear, or are they going to let that happen with commercial real estate with, with housing prices? Are we really going to find that true price discovery? You know, that, that, you know, it's almost that pain that sets up the next leg of the bull market. I'm just concerned that we won't actually go through that pain. <laughs> I think we will in pockets and we should talk about commercial real estate. We should talk about leveraged loans, but I think your overall muddle through scenario uh, could make sense. I mean, if you think about inflation today or tomorrow, it's expected to come in at 5.5% uh, mm -hmm. headline inflation, but it's also projected to fall to three and a half percent by the end of the year. And at some point be in the twos next year. Wow. So that's kind of a nice muddle through type of a scenario. And if well, the that, Fed actually, I mean, Anastasia, I too, if it yeah. hits two and a half percent, I that to me, that's not even a muddle through. That's the Fed could take a victory lap if they really get it down to two and a half percent. I mean, I, I think can. a lot of people had almost given up hope that it would be in the twos again, you know. Time yeah. Time. Well, it may be high twos. I think that's another thing that's that's different this time. But what I mean is that for the next few months, we're probably in the inflation is starting to slowly come down. The Fed is still holding at 5%. You know, So that's fine for risk assets. I think that's kind of range bound to maybe a little bit higher. But once the Fed actually says, well, our gap now between the nominal Fed funds rate and the rate of inflation is 
so wide that we have room to cut rates, I think that's what gets us out of the muddle through and potentially, you know, to, to, to start the bull market. But I think there's a few things that may still break in the meantime. And, you know, commercial real estate, speaking of commercial real estate, prices have corrected there already. 15% is sort of the latest estimate from the peak off probably closer to 20% correction. But you've got over a trillion dollars in commercial loans that are coming due over the course of this year and next out of the four and a half trillion of CRE loans outstanding. So that's kind of a wall of maturities that has to be refinanced. Some of it is an office where the vacancy rates are 15 or 16%. Yeah. So when you look at that setup, you, you have to kind of think, well, there's likely to be some pain and some defaults that come out of that. And, you know, to put the regional bank crisis back into the spotlight here, who is the biggest lender to commercial real estate? It's the regional banks. It's the local banks. The regionals account for 70% of the CRE loans out there. Uh, so if you have a loan that's coming due, but a bank, a regional bank, that is not willing to refinance that loan, you know, what happens pot potentially? Is there a default event? So that's the risk that may sort of eventually create the clearing that you're talking about, Andy. But then I, I also want to take the other side of that and to your point about dry powder. And if the regional banks who right now account for something like 25% of you know, new lending to, to, to commercial real estate, if they step back, could a family office step in? Could a sovereign wealth fund step in? Could a private credit fund that maybe now wants to go after the real estate vertical step in? And I think the answer to all those questions is yes, they can. Mm -hmm. But if they're stepping in to issue a loan, they're going to be demanding a higher spread. And, you know, today that's maybe 12, 13, 14 percent. Um, and if they're going to step in and provide equity, they're going to require potentially a much lower valuation. So so I think this wall of upcoming maturities will likely force some clearing event uh, in commercial real estate. I see. So, so you're seeing that same dry powder that I'm seeing when I talk with family offices, but they're going to insist, you know, d depending on the asset, they're going to insist on that seven cap, you know, rather than the, the six right. cap that it might be priced at today. So in your view, that could be kind of the, the final leg down. And, and then maybe at that point, you know, where we are in the cycle, the, the Fed can finally start to cut rates. And then now everybody wants to go shopping again. Like, hey, look, low interest rates. Let's all go shopping for real estate again, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like, Andy, how you fast forward to the good part of the business cycle. <laughs> this, is, this is great. Well, that's not uh, the good. To, to me, the good part would be if asset prices could fall and, you know, those right. of us with dry powder could go shop. I, I just yeah. feel like we're in this. I, I remember, I don't remember if this was uh, two years ago. There was some year where with Black Friday, I don't do the Black Friday stuff, but I, you know, I always read the news stories about the shopping because it's always kind of the canary in the coal mine or whatever. And yeah. it, consumers were waiting for deals. And then it was like, this was the lowest, uh, the least amount of discounting never on Black Friday because uh, there were like supply chain problems and there just wasn't enough inventory. So the retailers were like, well, why discount? We're going to sell all of these TVs. We're going to sell all of these video game systems anyway. So there were like no discounts. I feel like that's the scenario. A lot of family <laughs> offices, they're waiting for Black Friday. You know, they want to go to Walmart and buy everything 30% off, but it's Black Friday may never come, guys. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I wrote this article late last year called uh, Sitting, Waiting, Wishing. And yeah. maybe it was wishing for the Fed to hike it. Maybe it was wishing for the valuations to correct. But if you, and I wrote this back in late November, but if you fast forward to today and sort of assess the situation, you know, we have had, I think we have had a clearing event in technology valuations, for example. Mm. If you look at some of the high flying software, it went from, you know, trading at 20 times. EV to EBITDA to trading at five. So that's just, it kind of back to historic pre-pandemic averages. So that that's a, a heck of a correction there. If you think about crypto, well, you know, a lot of what needed to be flushed out of crypto, uh, I think has been, and Bitcoin is back above 30,000 um, as we speak. When you think about you know, um, bond prices, they have reset significantly. Uh, when you think about private equity valuations, they have started to correct, but I think there's likely more to go there. But again, the fact that there's $1.2, $1.3 trillion worth of dry powder, I think that limits the extent of the correction that we may have. But we are in the process of a true real estate correction. As I mentioned, office, retail are down 25 or 21%. So I think that should start to pique investors' interest. And you know, back to the sitting, waiting, wishing, you know, I don't think the strategy is to sit and wait and do nothing throughout this, you know, valuation reset. We don't truly know how long it's going to take to play out. Maybe it's already happened. Maybe it's going to be happening in the next few quarters. But chances are, if you commit to invest over the coming quarters, we'll at least pick up some pretty good valuations along the way. You know, yeah. even if you, you know, don't call the bottom here or the bottom there. But I think this you know, spreading out your investment time horizon as we muddle through. Yes, That's kind that, of how I would think about that. DCA end, uh, totally. You know, it, it's interesting, you know, some of the points you made with this technology reset, and it feels like venture capital has reset. And so, you know, if you look at commercial real estate, it's like, come on, guys, give it the program. You know, didn't you see what happened over here with venture <laughs> capital? Um, yeah. But, but, you know, some of these commercial real estate owners, you know, sellers, asset managers, they have relatively inexpensive debt right now. And so it really takes that external event. You know, it, it, it takes the, the, <laughs> the carrot yeah. and the stick. It takes the stick, I suppose, sometimes to get sellers to see the light, to really understand the true value of the asset in the current market. Well, that's a good point is when we look at sort of the repricing in real estate's transaction based, but if there's been no transactions or limited transactions, yeah. you know, that's what's, you know, that's what's kind of limiting perhaps the extent of the valuation reset. But here, here's what I would say. I think the prices of real estate have reset for the rise in interest rates. When you look at the performance of the one of the increase real estate indices, it posted the worst quarterly result, negative, I think, 4%, uh, which was the worst result since uh, the global financial crisis. You know, and when you dig through the attribution of that total return, that was, that was a negative return, most of that was due to the reset higher in the cap rate. So if you think that we are now at a point where the Fed is actually done hiking rates, you know, maybe, you know, there's not as much of a headwind from real estate, uh, from uh, interest rates as there has been in the past. So that's sort of the good news um, for real estate. You know, the other kind of mitigating factor, maybe we don't have to have this massive, you know, further reset in real estate valuations is 
I mean, if you look at multifamily, for example, you know, yes, new apartment supply is coming online, but the vacancy rates are three or four percent. Right. You know, uh, you know, if you look at uh, warehousing, uh, you know, same thing. The vacancy rates are really, really low. So maybe the fundamentals are healthy enough, unlike they were in some of the venture and you know, uh, profitable. T- maybe the core real estate fundamentals are healthy enough. Um, to where you don't have to have this this significant reset. Again, in office, it's a little bit different because there's a 15 or 16% vacancy rate. Uh, and we know that there's so much square footage available for sublease that we've never dealt with before. So that's a different story. Um, but you need a trigger, right? You need a trigger event, again, for this clearing to happen. And I think that trigger is happening, you know, it will happen in two ways. First of all, the loans on commercial real estate or the, the rates on commercial real estate loans, some of them are floating rate. And so that reset from 4.5% to 7.5%. And how long can you continue to finance that when the cap rates, you know, or the, the income rate is 4% in the property, right? Yep. So at some point that becomes an upside down scenario. Uh, so that should cause some final clearing in the space. And then of course that wall of maturities uh, that we talked about as well. Uh, and when is that wall? Sorry, when when is that wall? Is that this year? Later this year? It's coming. It's coming now. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's starting now. Uh, if okay. I look at the distribution of maturities, twenty three and twenty four years, twenty three and twenty four represent the uh, the two largest maturity years, about five hundred billion of maturities um, in each of there, those years. Is there a risk? I, I I say risk in quotation marks for our audio listeners, but the, is there a risk that interest rates will go down? You know, by the time that some of these loans mature and get refinanced, that interest rates come down. And, yeah. you know, that's kind of what I mean by the bull market that might make everybody a little mad, you know, and that in that case, you might kind of get away with it scot-free, right? Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> if you look at the Fed Fund Futures curve and it's implying three and a half percent rates and, yeah. you know, sometime in 2024, then that's right. Perhaps that 500 billion that needs to be right refi in 2024, that actually gets refinanced at a lower rate. So I would say that's a mitigating factor. The other one, you know, I guess for those that are expecting, you know, a huge, you know, GFC type of a reset is this lending standards are not GFC type lending standards. Mm-hmm. And back during the global financial crisis, the loan to value uh, ratio on commercial real estate was 70%, maybe higher. So, you know, if equity prices or CRE prices drop by 30%, you you potentially wipe up all, all that equity and, you know, here's your loan. But today, the loan to value ratio for a lot of properties are in the 50s, maybe low 60s, you know, but the average is probably closer to 56. So that tells you that the real estate prices can decline 45, 50%, you know, before all the equity is wiped out. So I would say the lenders, the CRE lenders, perhaps are in much better shape than versus what they were during the financial crisis. Having said that, how do you escape 16% vacancy um, rate in office? I don't know if you do without a clearing event. Yeah, I well, with office, yes. And I mean, if you look at the the publicly traded REITs, you know, office has already kind of uh, in the publicly traded world (laughs) say has, has had a clearing event in sense of, those very steep discounts with the publicly traded REITs. And it, it's just kind of interesting, you know, it, all the family offices that are listening, you know, 
you have your dry powder ready, but you know, you, you may never see that seven cap or that eight cap on the property you want. It just may never come. That's what I mean. We right. maybe bull maybe bull market is the wrong word, but you know, it, we just may may never see the true Black Friday that like like we saw through the, through the Great Financial Crisis. And it's like every crisis that you go through. What's what's the saying where you know in terms of the Fed, but I think also investors do this. We're always fighting the last battle, you know, because right. of our memories. We're <laughs> that's always right. So we're always thinking, what happened in 2008, 2009? Surely that's going to repeat itself in 2023. And it's not, right? There's a different set of circumstances now. It's a different set of circumstances for the broad economy. I mean, completely agree. Just thinking of thinking through the leverage in the economy, consumers have a lot less leverage, a more disposable income relative to um, that leverage. You've got corporations, you know, yes, there's some pain points in leverage loans, but largely investment grade corporates, high yield corporates, those loans have been underwritten at sort of much higher quality. Um, you know, so I, I just don't think you have the same set of leverage issues that got us in trouble during the financial crisis. So that's why, you know, if it's a recession, if it's a slowdown in the economy, it doesn't have to be this, you know, this catastrophic event as we saw before, because that's what drives that catastrophe is when things have to deleverage and assets have to be sold. But I, I agree with you that I don't think that's the case this time around. For the broad economy, you know, pockets, you know, of kind of dislocation certainly occurred, as I mentioned, unprofitable tech and crypto and potentially in leveraged loans. I mean, that publicly traded lev loan market tripled in size since the crisis. And, you know, if the interest rate coverage ratio was three and a half, four times for the index today, after 500 basis points of rate hikes, it's probably closer to one and a half. And, you know, you can have you have a significant portion, probably 30% of the index that might be the interest coverage ratio may be one or even below that. Mm -hmm. So I think you will have some, um, you know, some risks of deleveraging there. But again, that's a $1.3 trillion market versus all of the mortgages in the United States. Right. So unfortunately, it may be a, a garden variety bear market or a gar garden variety recession, or maybe not even a recession, muddle through, what have you. Anastasia, I know we're getting short on time. Uh, I love all these insights today. And you actually have given us a lot of predictions already. But I want to ask, you know, is there anything else that needs to be on the radar for high net worth investors, for family offices? you know, as they're allocating their portfolio, as they're managing their portfolios in the year ahead? Is there anything else that they need to keep their eye on? Yeah, I'll maybe give you kind of one risk that I don't think we have discussed yet. And, and then talk about how do you position against all of this? Um, I mean, the one risk that we haven't discussed is everybody, in, you know, in the markets, whether it's the economists or the, you know, inflation swaps, they're looking for inflation to come down. Um, towards the end, the end of the year. And, you know, that's all going to depend on what the month over month changes in inflation actually are. And if the month over month changes in inflation continue to be 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.7, guess what, around the turn of the, around the midpoint of the year, year over year inflation numbers may actually start to creep back up. So there's still a risk out there that 
despite of everything that we discussed and you know reasons that I'm hopeful, there's still a risk out there that the Fed is not yet done fighting inflation. And you know maybe they pause at five percent, but if the year-over-year numbers continue to move higher, then we may have to bring that six percent, you know, um, back to the discussion table. So that's a risk. That's not the base case, but that's something that um, should be on investors' radar this year. Um, again, as we kind of turn the calendar to July and August, um, you know. So having said that, it is a highly binary environment. It's a highly uncertain environment, and Andy, I don't know if you agree, but it's like it's a really kind of uncomfortable time to be an investor. Yes. It can't be too bearish. It can't be too bullish. So yeah. you know, you're back into the muddle through scenario. But I say the luxury that we have today as investors and something we haven't had for a long time is you can get paid while you wait out of this volatility mm. and then use this you know, time period of uncertainty where valuations are in the process of resetting you know, to your advantage as well and be opportunistic. So as I think about you know, how to manage through this period is let's get some yield in the portfolio. You know, Cash pays you 5%, that's great. But guess what? Private credit yields you 10 or 11% at this point. So yeah. that's a nice way to get almost a double double digit yield in a portfolio and maybe not worry about the, you know, the day to day of Fed and inflation. Anastasia, the- I'm sorry to interrupt. You just mentioned private credit. Someone asked me the other day, I've never been a huge proponent of it. Number one opportunity right now. I said the risk reward for private credit has never been better. And it's exactly what that's you right. said. You can get paid to wait. And in my lifetime, I mean, I'm 39, financial repression has basically been the norm for my entire investment career. I'm like, it's amazing. You can have a positive after-tax yield on some sort of income investment. It's amazing. It blows my mind. It's finally here. (laughs) That's new. That's something we haven't seen before. That's the new normal. Um, After tax and after inflation, that's right. And you know, if you don't think the Fed is done, then that's yet another way to kind of hedge that risk as well is because most of the private credit is floating rate and the spread that you get paid over and above the, uh, the, the floating rate is getting more attractive. Because guess what? As the banks retrench from lending, private credit has the opportunity to step in. Uh, but I'm glad we agree on that. And then the other side of it, you know, so get paid while you wait. And at the same time, you know, if you look at growth, uh, private equity, if you look at buyout, if you look at profitable technology stocks, mm. um, you know, if you maybe even look to earlier stage venture, which is not in my mind as high of lofty valuations as late stage venture, mm. we have seen some of those valuations come down. If you start looking at the opportunistic real estate um, from a total return perspective, given again, the 15% pullback in prices, these are all the opportunities that should be on the radar this year. And my point is probably don't pull the trigger, pull in one month, uh, but spread that risk out, but add to that risk throughout the course of the year. I love it. I think those are very wise words of wisdom to, you know, for all investors. If you're in a muddle through scenario, you don't need to bet on a bull. You don't need to bet on a bear. You can go back to basics. You can look for assets that have attractive valuations. And you can allocate a portfolio to, you know, receive positive after-tax yield. Um, so it it's never a wrong time to get back to basics. I love that tip, Anastasia. Um, and, and that being said, and I know we're running out of time, 
where can our audience of family offices and high net worth investors go to keep up with your insights and your research? Because I know you published this on iCapital.com. Is that right? That's right. iCapital.com. Uh, you can subscribe to my uh, most of the time weekly commentary, uh, uh, Market Pulse, where we try to discuss some of the most relevant topics in the markets and also take a deeper dive into alternative investments. Um, so Market Pulse and just the whole suite of our insights and education uh, would be a place to look for uh, frequent updates. Absolutely. And I'll be sure to link to those in our show notes. And for our viewers and listeners, you can also keep up with Anastasia on CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business. She's everywhere. Uh, Anastasia, thanks so much for joining the show today. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks, everybody. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.